This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 9th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, contributing correspondent Josh Sokol discusses what's new with magnetars. These are incredibly magnetic neutron stars that sometimes shoot out insanely fast bursts of gamma rays. Then I talk with researcher Christoph Zolikoffer about the origins of our elaborate brains. When and where did humans get such complex thinking machinery? First up this week, we have contributing correspondent Josh Sokol. We're going to talk about magnetars and some exciting things revealed by an observation from a recent flare from a magnetar. Hi, Josh. Hi. Okay, magnetars. They're these highly magnetized neutron stars. How do they get so magnetic? Well, that's a little bit mysterious. So neutron stars normally form in a supernova. They're compressed out of the core of a very massive star. At some point in that formation, specifically like the first 10 seconds that the magnetar exists, it's fluid, its whole mass is molten. And somehow in there, a dynamo action can start to get going. Something like the dynamo at the center of the earth that powers the earth's magnetic field or the dynamo that powers the sun's magnetic field. At least that's the theory. And this is swirling charged particles that basically make a bunch of magnetic fields. Exactly. Can you give us a picture of a magnetar? I'm having trouble imagining something that's very heavy, but also kind of small, but also really magnetic. If you think about an ordinary neutron star, this is basically the last stop on the line that matter can be and not be a black hole. It's the densest form of matter imaginable. You've taken something about the mass of the sun or a little bit bigger, and you've compressed it to the size of a city. You have a 10 kilometer radius in which you've packed matter at the density of an atomic nucleus or a little bit denser. That is an incredibly extreme object already. And gravity around that works in weird ways. On top of that, the compression process concentrates magnetic fields. A magnetar is all of that. And then it's 
adding magnetic fields that are a thousand times stronger than even the normal neutron star magnetic fields something like a trillion times the strength of a refrigerator magnet. <laughs> and, and so now you're layering on top of the gravity effects, these magnetic field effects, and atoms are stretched into different oblong shapes in this magnetic field. Photons of light are split under this magnetic field. I will also add that it gets denser. So it's, it's a solid object. It's very hot. And the crust is solid. It's a, like, thought to be a crystal lattice. It's like a frozen crystal, even though it's still very hot. And the under parts are thought to be maybe a little bit more fluid, although it's very mysterious what forms matter even takes in the heart of a neutron star. Magnetars also release these massive gamma ray flares. This process is pretty amazing. Can you describe, you know, how researchers think at this point it works? What researchers think is happening is that the magnetic fields from the star are somehow gripping the crust and stressing it and straining it until it snaps. And there's a massive star quake, kind of like an earthquake. And it's that event, this huge earthquake on the surface of this insanely magnetized, heavy object that creates an event that's visible from galaxies away. We've seen some of these before, but something happened in April 2020 that made it so we could get a lot more information than we usually do about one of these. What was different about this particular gamma ray flare? So it's taken decades to see even a few of these events. And all of the ones that have been discovered before happened either in the Milky Way galaxy or right outside of it. They were actually so bright that they temporarily sent some spacecraft into safe mode. They swamped detectors. They flooded gamma ray instruments so much so that scientists couldn't even study the details of the event. Uh, what happened last year in April, on April 15th, was there was a, a gamma ray burst like this, but it was from a magnetar in another galaxy, a nearby galaxy called Sculptor. And because it was farther away, scientists could actually see more of the details of what happened because it wasn't so blindingly bright on our detectors. A side note here. You talk about us being flooded with gamma rays and they're awash in them and they're shooting at us. Are these dangerous for people when, you know, a flare from another galaxy impinges on us here on Earth? So this is kind of an interesting question. No, <laughs> not that dangerous. But in 2004, that was the closest magnetar giant flare to Earth. And I think it was tens of thousands of light years away. And it hit Earth on the night side of Earth. But atmospheric scientists actually measure that it temporarily turned the ionosphere of Earth from night to day. What? It was as if the sun was beating down and ionizing the atmosphere for a very brief moment. That's how powerful it was. I also talked to a scientist who said that if a magnetar giant flare went off pretty close to Earth, and nobody knows how often that would be, that it could cause disruptions to technology like a solar storm. Are these gamma ray flares that we're talking about the only way we're able to observe magnetars, the only way we're able to see something is a magnetar? You could also see magnetars in other ways. There are neutron stars that are very active, very magnetized. They have X-ray bursts and storms of activity that are observed much more often than these really rare flares. So I think now we know of at least 30 magnetars that are in the Milky Way. 
the latest flare that we t- were talking about today, the one from 2020, it came from the Sculptor Galaxy. And what it let us do was get different information about a magnetar and this flaring process. What were some of the new things that we learned from this? This burst, because it was farther away, it was still very bright, but the initial bright spike only took milliseconds for this big flash of gamma rays to come through the instruments. That revealed a lot about what's actually going on. And specifically, it showed that whatever is producing the brightness, the luminosity we see in this event, is plasma that's moving at near the speed of light. This is going back to when you talked about a star quake and cracking the surface of the magnetar and then plasma comes out at that point. Yeah. So there's a lot of bridging here between a theoretical picture of an object that is so extreme, it's hard to simulate, hard to calculate, and then what's actually observed. In this case, we see this flash of gamma rays. And the idea is that there is a star quake. It rips open some of the surface of this highly magnetized, hot, gravitationally supercharged object. Plasma comes out. The magnetic fields are so strong around this object that plasma can only really escape near the poles. But when it does escape, there's so much energy that it shoots out at nearly the speed of light. (laughs) Wow. Now that we have a better understanding, you know, through observation of what's going on, are we going to be able to look for more of these things? Is this going to be a new kind of signal that we can look for? I mean, it seems like we've seen the flares before. Is this additional information going to help us build new instruments. This is the first case where scientists have said, look, we have a consensus. This is clear that this event was caused by a magnetar star quake in another galaxy. Now that they have the template for what that looks like, how quickly it rises in brightness and then fades, and what energy gamma rays it creates, they are already taking that template and going back to the archive of all the gamma ray bursts that have been previously discovered. And there are a lot. Gamma ray bursts come in every few days. And so the thought is that a small minority of them, but maybe even a few percent of them, are coming from events like this, but they just haven't been recognized that way before. I think we should also mention that last year, a magnetar was linked with these mysterious fast radio bursts. Our gamma ray flares, what we're talking about today, and fast radio bursts related. They might be. The current thinking is that magnetars with a strong magnetized environment around them are really good candidates to produce fast radio bursts. And there was another event in April 2020 where a Milky Way magnetar produced a small fast radio burst, which really suggests that the two are linked. Seeing the the giant flares from magnetars outside of the galaxy both shows that magnetars are common and shows that magnetars do produce this range of mild events to medium-sized events to very extreme events. So the fact that there are a lot of magnetars out there and that the giant flares suggest that there are a lot of them across the universe that we have the potential to be able to measure and count, that really bolsters the idea that the magnetars out in the universe could be accounting for a lot of the fast radio bursts that have been so mysterious. This is something that you bring up in your story a number of times, the idea that magnetars may underlie a lot of stuff that astronomers think is mysterious at this point, and they think magnetars might be contributing to a bunch of different phenomena that are being observed. Yeah, I talked to one theoretical astrophysicist about this, and I asked him, why are magnetars showing up in so many theories? 
And his answer to me was, well, they rotate and they have super, super strong magnetic fields. And that means this is an object that can at any moment release a huge amount of energy in a small space. So they have been invoked to explain fast radio bursts. They have been invoked to explain some other types of gamma ray bursts that are different than the the giant flares. They have also been invoked to explain superluminous supernova. So how could you get a supernova that is a lot brighter than, than normal ones? And it's all because it's this object that can act as a battery or a central engine really effectively. And the giant flare is showing that it doesn't even have to have anything around it. It can be by itself and occasionally rip itself apart and create a really high energy event. I thought it was so interesting that the earliest observations of gamma rays from outer space were actually secret for a long time. Right. They were done by U.S. defense satellites. They were trying to test whether countries were breaking the nuclear weapons test bans because those would emit gamma rays. And these satellites discovered that outer space emits gamma rays occasionally too. And once it was declassified in the 1970s, astrophysicists from the U.S. and the Soviet Union ended up both studying events like this and trying to understand the astrophysics of gamma ray bursts. And it's a rare case of real international Cold War cooperation where the gamma ray burst that really showed that something new, which ended up being magnetars, had to exist, that was first detected by both U.S. and Soviet missions. And combining the data enabled people to study and and understand it much better. What's amazing to me is in the late 1970s, scientists got a network underway where they basically would take the high energy particle detectors on spacecraft going to Venus and you know spacecraft between the Earth and the Sun, and they would use them all as a network to look for gamma ray events and to look for things like these magnetar giant flares. That network has been going pretty much continuously from the 1970s until today. That's pretty amazing. Yeah they're still collecting data in this network. And it's been, I don't know, 50 years. It's been 50 years. The spacecraft in the network are totally different. There's new spacecraft coming in. What's cool too is the same scientists, the same Russian scientists who had these pioneering observations of the first magnetar giant flare and the first magnetar, they are still participating. The people who are running this network are still the same or they're in the same like academic lineages. So it's this incredible continuity where this field is not that old, but it has such a rich history already. Right. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you. Josh Sokol is a contributing correspondent for science based in North Carolina. You can find a link to the story and an amazing graphic illustrating some of the processes we talked about at sciencemag.org slash podcast. When exactly did we get our souped up cogitation equipment? Next up, we hear about the origins of human brains. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. 
There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Human brains, our brains, are very different from those of our closest living relatives, great apes like orangutans and chimpanzees. But when did we get these big, elaborate brains? This week in science, Christoph Zolikofer and colleagues wrote a paper about the timeline for brain elaboration in humans. Hi, Christoph. Hello. Good afternoon. What are some of the big differences between our brains and those of other great apes? Probably the first and most conspicuous difference is the sheer volume. So our brains have about three times the volume of that of adult great apes. The second thing is that our brains have slightly different structures. And we know from comparisons of ape brains and human brains that those structural shifts that we call brain reorganization in the sense of evolution, that those are responsible for typical human behaviors like social cognition, tool use, tool making, complex cultural achievements, and of course, language. Now, to understand when these differences came, we have to go way back in time and look at our ancestors. But of course, we don't have brains from millions of years ago. Instead, you in this paper used the holes where the brains once were, the brain cases. What can looking inside a fossilized skull tell us about ancient brains? There is, of course, this unfortunate situation that brains themselves don't fossilize. But during the life of those ancient hominins, their brains left imprints on the internal side of their brain cases. Actually, those virtual fillings or real fillings of those fossilized brain cases, these are named endocasts. So those endocasts show us a lot of structural detail about those long-gone brains. So you can say this brain was very much different than this brain saying, oh, well, it has a different shape and a different volume. Yeah, actually, and here this is where the real challenge starts. Those brain convolutions that we all have in our own brains do have a lot of individual variation among right. living humans, among living great apes. So the point is, if you just have a single hominid fossil, what is just individual expression of those brain convolutions and what is the general pattern that tells us something about differences at the level of evolution. How can you get around this difficulty of distinguishing what might be individual variation from, you know, person to person or chimp to chimp from important evolutionary differences? The first thing is indeed a lot of variation among humans, among chimpanzees, among gorillas, orangutans. But what's the important point is if you look at the ranges of those variation patterns, there's no overlap between great apes and humans. And that's something crucial for the analysis of fossil endocasts. So think about that as follows. In 
humans in living great apes, we do have the real brains and we do have the real endocasts. So we can make the connections between soft and hard tissue. In fossils, we only have the endocast with some marks left by the long-gone brains. This is the way how we get an idea about whether in a given fossil, we look at individual features or evolutionarily important features that make the difference. And we did find those. Why did you look at a geographic range of skulls? One point is that you just take what you, what you get. Right. There are not that many hominin fossils that preserve brain cases to the extent that they actually tell you something about evolutionary processes. That's the first thing. The second thing is one of our key questions, how does brain evolution relate to human dispersals? So we know that early Homo left Africa to disperse into the entire old world. And we want to ask, what's the relation between their behaviors that are based on their brains and those dispersals out of Africa? Right. Did they have elaborate, complex, modern human brains when these early homos first left Africa? And now that's the big surprise. So we have this beautiful sample of five well-preserved skulls of early homo from Manisi in today's Georgia, so in Western Asia. And to have a big surprise, these have relatively primitive great ape-like brains, like their closest relatives in time in Africa, which means dispersing out of Africa didn't require particularly big or particularly modern organized brains. But there are also the modern-like brain cases found in Africa, which means that the reorganization, the evolution of these more modern-style brains happened there and then dispersed globally? Yeah, so the timeline is as follows. Between about 1.7 and 1.5 million years ago, we see a change happening. We see brain reorganization going on in Africa, in the few fossils that we have from Africa from that time range. And later on, we see exactly the same modern-looking brain morphology in the well-known fossils from Java that we normally call Homo erectus, which means that there must have been a second dispersal from Africa shortly after, let's say, those modern structures have been invented in Africa. And this second dispersal led those early humans into Southeast Asia. So you now have a little bit of when and where these changes took place. And what do you think it says about these brains and human behavior? It tells you a lot about what kind of brains you need to do things like producing tools, cooperate with other humans and dispersing. And probably the most surprising answer that we get is you don't really need especially large and especially modern organized brain to disperse from Africa, which in other words means we shouldn't underestimate the actual power, the potential of great ape-like brains in hominins. That's the first point. Second point, those second dispersals with people, with the hominins having relatively modern organized brains. Now we can ask what kind of 
difference did that make? And in our opinion, the brains of those people, we call them language-ready brains, because they do have the structural foundations that we need as modern humans for spoken language. Of course, we don't know whether those Homo erectus in East Asia spoke any language, but at least the basis is there and it evolved in Africa. What prompted you to do this study now? Actually, we started thinking about this project, believe it or not, back in the 90s. And at that time, we simply didn't have the comparative data, computer tomography, and magnetic resonance imaging, the major tools that we use are, have been in their infancy. And many fossils haven't yet been found. Only after a major effort of our entire team of acquiring data from the Tmanisi fossils, from the fossils in Java, getting data from Africa, was it possible to integrate everything? And then the results were so surprising that we just didn't believe our eyes. <laughs> and we had to reconfirm and retest and reconsider everything again and again and again until we were really sure, well, the origin of the um, brain of Homo was much later than what we thought before. One of the innovations in this paper really is just looking at these brain cases in a different way. I would say up to now, people looked at hominin endocasts from the perspective of them being hominins in the sense of, wow, that's a hominin endocast. So let's look for derived human-like brain features that left their imprints. And our approach in that sense is more relaxed. We say, okay, it's the endocast of a bipedal great ape, something like that. It has a relatively large brain, the great apes as well. So just let's look for primitive versus derived features that brains might have left in those endocasts. So it's kind of the big perspective, not starting from some assumptions what we should expect. So what's next? How will you add on to this research? One question will be, now we have evidence for two out of Africans of early Homo. What can we start to know about that. We don't know that much, but there must be some interesting things going on, having gone on there. So that will be an important question to study. Of course, the second question will be, what kind of implications does that have, for example, for the origins of language? Why did those modern looking brain structures evolve exactly in that time frame? Was it connected to cultural innovation? So was it kind of a gene culture coevolution effect? Because we know that around that time, the complexity of stone implements that you find in Africa increased quite a bit. Thank you so much, Christoph. Have a good day. Christoph Zolikofer is a professor of anthropology at the University of Zurich. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. 
The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.